Most of you have probably heard by now of the suicides over the past couple of weeks of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Um, And, you know, that's just incredibly sad. And I I don't want to speculate on what all was was going on there. Um, Matt mentioned a student at Wofford who committed suicide just at the end of the semester. Uh, And it's a growing problem. The Centers for Disease Control says that the suicide rate in the United States increased 25% between 1996 and 2016. And um, I'm sure there are a host of factors that contribute to that, but I want to put lay one before you this morning. British journalist named Will Storr uh, wrote a book called Selfie, How We We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. How he became so self-obsessed in what it's doing to us. And he begins this book actually with a chapter on suicide. And he suggests that one of the contributing factors to the spike in the suicide rate is actually the shame that so many of us feel over not meeting the ridiculous expectations that have been placed on us and that we place upon ourselves. That we just can't live up to these things. And so we despair when we don't reach these heights. Uh, He notes that adolescent girls are becoming more and more unhappy with their bodies, that more and more men are suffering from body image issues as well. Uh, He says that professors are are telling him that students are dealing with more and more anxiety, and they think that some of this is driven from what they call perfectionist presentation, which is the pressure to always Uh, be successful and always presenting that you've conquered the next thing on your social media feed. And I'm successful, I'm successful, I'm successful. And you you feel this pressure to always live up to that. Uh, Storr says that he struggles, himself struggles with self-loathing and suicidal thoughts. And he writes this, we're living in the age of perfectionism and perfection is the idea that kills People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. Um, I I take all this from an article by a guy named David Zoll, and I want you to listen to to David Zoll's comments on this. He says, in all this it bears repeating, yes, we want to be more successful and more organized and more attractive and self-actualized, but only because we want to feel better. We We want the voice of not enough to be silenced. We don't want to be in pain. That we scramble from one solution to the next, from one strategy to its opposite and back again, only shows how pervasive that pain is. Because the old adage is true. If the self were as improvable as this literature, the self-help literature suggests, the self-help industry would cease to exist. Uh, But it's actually, he writes, a $10 billion industry. He goes on to say... That store is getting at something that Esther Pearl once described in regard to the pressure people feel in a post-religious context. When she said, we brought happiness down from the afterlife, first to be an option and then a mandate. In other words, this is your shot. Be all that you can be or else. The end result is pretty grim. An ever-shifting, technologically amplified, improved self, improved society without any recourse for those who fail to meet their potential, which is all of us. Recalibrated law meets subtracted gospel. 
In other words, this life is all that I've got. So I've got to get all that I can out of it right now. And so we come up with new laws that we try to reach in order to perfect ourselves. But we've gotten rid of the gospel, so there's nowhere for us to turn when we fail to meet these standards. Uh, one of the way people react to all of this is, you know, we're, we're always going like from one extreme to the other. And so one of the way people react to all this is sort of the, well, you, you know what, just forget all that. You just be you. Just, just you be you. Uh, Sarah Knight has a book called You Do You, How to Be Who You Are and Use What You've Got to Get What You Want. Uh, and she agrees that, yeah, perfectionism is killing us. So she says, well, here's what you need to do. You need to recast your weaknesses as strengths. Uh, you need to be pragmatic. You need to set realistic expectations. You need to advocate for your own needs. And you need to quit being so nice. Uh, just be who you are. Right? So we kind of we bounce this way from one extreme to the other. Well, how does that affect us? How does that affect our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity as Christians? Uh, one, we can get so busy trying to have the the perfect body and the perfect life and the perfect experiences that we don't have time for Jesus. Like, we're so busy perfecting everything. And so church becomes somewhere that I go on Sunday, but it's actually disconnected from the perfect life that I'm really pursuing the rest of the week. I just just show up here and then I'm I'm back to pursuing perfection. Uh, A second thing that happens is we start pulling all these self-help strategies into our walk with Jesus. So following Jesus just becomes nothing but plans and boxes that I've got to check off and be successful at. And if we feel like we're successful, we become Pharisees who think everybody else would be fine if they could just get their act together and check the same boxes that I'm checking. Or if we fail and fall flat on our face, we're just like, man, Christianity is too hard. This is just not for me. I can't seem to do this. A third way we react is we say, I'm just going to be me. I'm so glad God loves sinners and I'm a sinner and I'm good at sinning. So I'm just going to keep doing that and let God keep loving me and forgiving me. And I'm not going to put that much effort into this. I'm just going to be who I am. Uh, So, uh, a long introduction. How do the scriptures speak in all of it all of this that's what we're going to think about Uh, first Thessalonians 5 verse 23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it brothers Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as we give attention to your word, I I pray that you would come and you would uh, work through an imperfect man and an imperfect message and that you would speak to imperfect people. Uh, And that you would give us hope, not in our perfecting ourselves, but you would give us hope this morning in you uh, and what you're about in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about what God is doing in the life of the believer and then how he's doing that. 
what God is doing in the life of the believer and then how he's doing that. First, what is he doing in the life of the believer? Look back at verse 23. Paul prays, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul tells us that God is interesting in perfecting us also. That, that God looks at us and He agrees that we are not who we need to be, and He intends to change us into someone new. He prays for the believers at Thessalonica. He says, may God sanctify you completely. Uh, To sanctify means to make holy, to make pure, to dedicate something to God, to set apart something from God. That's what God intends to do in the lives of believers. This, This is God's me improvement project. This is how God wants to improve my life. Now, by nature, I'm not really, you and I aren't really interested in this project. All right? My idea is to shape myself into the best possible me and to work hard so that I can have the best possible life now, today. And then I can post pictures of this great, wonderful life online and you can like them and validate me that I really do have this wonderful life that I've been trying so hard to achieve for myself. But, but here's the thing, outside of knowing Jesus Christ, my, all these efforts at self-improvement are really like painting the outside of a broken down house, giving it a, a fresh coat of paint, maybe put a new front door on it, but, but that's about it. But if you go inside, you start looking around, you start looking, there's holes in the walls and, and Things are rotting and the foundation is not in good shape. And and no matter how pretty we've made the outside, the inside is still a broken down house. And if the the building inspector comes comes by, the house is still going to be condemned. He's not removing that sign from the front yard because even though we've covered it up, it is still a condemned house. Uh, You and I are are made to, to know God. And to love God and to relate to God, to glorify God. But we reject God and we try to find life apart from him. And that throws everything off kilter. It it, it throws off our relationship with God. It throws off our relationship with other people. even affects the way that we think about ourselves. And the gospel is about Jesus, as we talked about in the catechism question, taking on human flesh. And living life the way that it's intended to be lived. And loving God perfectly. And loving his neighbor perfectly. And giving up his life for our refusal to love God and our neighbor as we should. And going to to the cross and paying the fine, so to speak, that the building inspector has levied because of this broken down house that we're living on us. And paying that sign so that that paying that fine so that the sign out front that said condemned could be removed and replaced with a sign that says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then via the Holy Spirit, Jesus moves into our broken down house. He's removed the sign that says condemned and now he moves into our house and begins the work of restoring it from the inside out. Restoring us from the inside out. Changing us so that we have a right view of God and a right view of our neighbor and a right view 
of ourselves, changing us so that we become people who know how to love others, right? And know how to receive love as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the book of Revelation says that all history is going to end with a meal. Uh, it's going to end with a marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, and we are going to be transformed at that day, and so we will be blameless and without sin as we sit at this dinner table. Can you, can you imagine that? Like, y'all think about how our meals are. Can, can, like a big family meal. Can you imagine sitting down at that dinner table? And there is no bitterness. And there is no insecurity. And there is no fear. There is no walking on eggshells. There is no frustration. There is no self-protection. There is no dread. There is no sin. I mean, can, you, can you imagine a dinner table like that? I know for some of us, like the resurrection is, is hard to believe in, but this is almost more hard to believe in, that you could have a meal like that. Where we are there loving one another perfectly with no sin. But Paul says, for the believer in Jesus Christ, that's your destination. That's perfection. And that's what God is up to in the lives of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. A perfection. But it's a very different perfection from what we find ourselves looking for a lot of times, isn't it? So uh, let me make four applications from this point. Uh, First of all, this gives me direction. It gives me direction. The, The finished product that God has in mind when he looks at me is making me someone who is holy. And my becoming holy means that in the meantime, I have to put up with difficulties. I have to put up with hardships. I have to put up with sufferings. This is the way God molds me. Uh, Because he's more interested in my long-term happiness, which involves my holiness, than he is in my short-term happiness in any given moment. Someone told me recently that, that China always takes the long view that when you see what they're doing in the world strategically, they're not thinking three years down the road. They're thinking 50 years down the road or 100 years down the road. They take the long view. God takes the long view in our lives. He's playing the long game. He's, he's, he's got a destination in mind for us of perfect holiness. And everything going on in our lives now is leading up to that. Knowing all that ought to help me to think more clearly about the goals I set for myself and the direction that my life is heading. I should want to see my own life tacked toward this goal of being made holy. Because then I know I'm lining up with God's will for my life if I'm going in that direction. So it gives me direction. Secondly, it gives me hope. I don't know about y'all, but my life is messy. I'm not who I should be. But God didn't send Jesus to come and find well-behaved, put-together people to rescue. He saves sinners. He saves people with broken down houses. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's who we are and yet look at where we're heading. And God intends to do that with broken down houses. That gives me hope. It also gives me confidence. Uh, Verse 23 says that we will be blameless. Uh, What does that mean? Well, we'll, we are now and will be found publicly legally blameless because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We will be made more and more in this life into the image of Jesus. And in that day, we will be be made perfectly into the image of Jesus. And so we'll be blameless. Yeah, but how do I know that that's going to happen? Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. Our confidence in this is not in ourselves and our self-help strategies. Our confidence is in God. Uh, Your facilities team met a few weeks ago with former Mayor Bill Barnett to talk about the Northside Initiative and what's going on on the north side of Spartanburg. It's one of many locations we're thinking about as a possible home for Grace Pres. I tell people, people ask, where are you going to be? And I say, everything's on the table. Like everything is on the table. We haven't narrowed anything down, so this is just information gathering for us. But the Northside Initiative is pretty impressive, what they're trying to do over there in that part of the city. And I have a pretty high degree of confidence that they're going to do what they're trying to do. Why? Because Bill Barnett's involved with it. And Bill Barnett has an incredible track record of of doing things in Spartanburg. So I'm confident because I know the person who is driving that initiative. If he wasn't involved with it, honestly, I probably wouldn't be as confident. Unless, you know, they might find somebody else after Bill gives this up. But right now, like if if I was leading the Northside Initiative, y'all could write off that section of Spartanburg. Uh, but, But because he's involved, you can have confidence in it. It's the same way with our sanctification. If this was just up to me, I would have serious questions about this Justin Reclamation project because I don't know if this is going to work out that well. But because God is the one who is involved in it, because God is faithful, I know that he will surely do it. He will surely complete what he started. And so I put my confidence every day in him. And then fourthly, this actually gives me patience with myself. Uh, because it, what it says to me is, here's God's goal, but it's not going to be accomplished fully until heaven, until the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not going to be fully sanctified this side of eternity. So I don't have to be perfect every day. I strive for holiness, yes, but, but I'm going to fail and you're going to fail. And that's okay. It's okay. It's okay that you're not okay. Um, Yes, repent when you fail. But when we repent, we don't fall out of God's grace. We fall back in to God's grace. So pursue holiness. But don't despair when you fail. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what you fall back into when you fail. So God is sanctifying us. And one day he's going to finish this work of sanctification that he started in us. But how does he do this? 
right? Well, how's this process work? God makes us holy, but He uses means to do this. All right, the, the power company will send power to your house to make all the lights in your house come on. They don't just send electricity through the air to your house. Now, they're probably going to be able to soon, and this illustration won't work. But for right now, they're not, they're not doing that. that. That line, the power has to come through the line to your house. That's the means that gets the power there. God uses means to change us, to give us spiritual power and, and light, if you will. And you see some of them here. Uh, notice in verse 23 and 24, Paul says, God's going to do this. All right, God's going to do this. Don't sweat it. God's going to do this. But he prays that God will do this. Like that's verse 23 is a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself. Paul is praying that God will do this. All right. And then not only does he pray for them, he knows that he needs prayer. And so he asks them to pray for him. Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. And so prayer is one of those means that God uses to change us and to accomplish his purposes in the world. Uh, Y'all heard me read this quote before. It's from Charles Spurgeon. It is well, excuse me, it is well said that asking is the rule of the kingdom. It is a rule that will never be altered in anybody's case. If the royal and divine son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect to have the rule relaxed in our favor. God will bless Elijah and send rain to Israel, but Elijah must pray for it. If the chosen nation is to prosper, Samuel must plead for it. If the Jews are to be delivered, Daniel must intercede. God will bless Paul, and the nation shall be converted through him, but Paul must pray. Pray he did, without ceasing. His epistles show that he expected nothing except by asking for it. <clears throat> I heard a story this week of how the poison control hotline got started. Y'all know the phone number? Like, yeah, like it's a lot of parents, like you, that number's drilled in your mind. And basically, it was a guy, and I, and I can't remember exactly, I think he was a pharmacist. And it was when we first started developing household cleaners. Like, we didn't used to have all this Ajax and everything in our homes. And a lot of this stuff that we suddenly brought into our homes is actually really toxic if consumed. So it was like a problem that people didn't have that much before. And for whatever reason, people started, doctors even started calling this guy. Like, what do we do? We just had this kid drink, you know, Clorox. What, what am I supposed to do? And so this guy basically became the answer. He was poison control, and he had a stack of note cards with, okay, this is what you do in this situation, this is what you do in this situation. And people would call him at all hours of the night. They would call him at home while he was eating supper. They would call him while he was on vacation. He was, he was one-man poison control. Now, obviously, eventually, this thing is, is spread. You know, we have it in all our major cities. You can call poison control. There are people sitting at computers right now that that's all they do, and they can tell you what you need to do in any given situation. But people don't call poison control as much as they used to. They just don't do it. The number of people calling is dropping. And what's gone up is people are no longer calling poison control, the average folks they're getting more doctors and emergency room people than used to calling poison control because the cases they're seeing are more serious because people aren't calling from home. Well, why aren't they calling from home? Well, we don't know for sure, but one person speculated, it's because we don't like to talk on the phone anymore. 
Like, like really, like we're not calling poison control because we don't like to talk on the phone anymore. And so now they're trying to figure out how to make this like online interactive to, to combat that. But think about that. Like, like here's this help that's readily available and these people know what they're talking about, but we don't like to talk on the phone anymore. And so we don't call them in the middle of a crisis. And that, that's what we do with prayer, isn't it? Like it's, it's hard and I don't see the value in it immediately and it, it takes time and so we just don't do it and we, we cut ourselves off from the very help that we need. Paul prayed for his churches. He wanted his churches to pray for him. He was confident that God was at work, but he also believed that God worked through the prayers of his people. Now, uh, secondly, God works through his word. Look at verse 27. Uh, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He thought pretty highly of his letter, didn't he? Uh, that he wrote to everybody. Well, here's what Peter says in Second Peter. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so the reason he wanted this read out loud was because this was Scripture. This was the Word of God. And the church was beginning to recognize this as the Word of God and as Scripture. Uh, And so Paul puts them under oath to read this to all the brothers. Uh, And the, the word here for read actually means to read publicly. And so as the believers gathered for worship, a component of that was the public reading and teaching of the scriptures. Why do we do this? Why do we carve out this part of the worship service to read the word and to think about what the word of God says? We do this because God uses his word to change us and to conform us into the image of Christ. We do this because the word is not a dead word. It's a living word. And it's a powerful word. Uh, Philip Swinesgood uh, took the boys and I trout fishing earlier this week, took us fly fishing. And the boys are still learning how to fly fishing, how to fly fishing, how to fly fish. Uh, and, and I could have taught, taken them and taught them, but I probably would have intimidated them. So um, that's, if y'all know my fishing ability, you know that's not true. I needed somebody who actually knew what they were doing to teach them how to fish. And so... I wanted them to hear Philip's words about fly fishing because they're good words about fly fishing and they're wise words about fly fishing and they're kind words about fly fishing and they're gracious words about fly fishing because he'll tell you where, where to fish and there will be a fish there. And if you don't catch it, he'll turn out and catch it for you um, to, to prove that it was there. And he'll be patient with you. And he'll instruct you and he'll be gracious and kind and you'll, you'll learn a lot. And then even if you don't catch anything, he'll still you know, give you a ride home. He doesn't, he doesn't leave you there. His, his words about fly fishing are good and powerful and life-giving if you're a fly fisher. Um, I don't know if they apply to other things, but for that, um, 
And so you, you would be foolish not to listen to what he says about that subject. God's word is living and powerful and life-giving. And we would be foolish not to listen to it. And so prayer, the word, uh, you know, I pointed out the, the word is read as we gather for worship. God uses this whole time to change us. I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago who has struggled with a lot of things. And he was in worship one Sunday morning at a, at a different church. And I, they sang to him Amazing, Amazing Grace. And he's heard it a million times. But it just suddenly hit him that morning that this is actually for me. And I need this. And God offers this grace to me. So God uses worship and singing to change us. Uh, the third thing here, he says to greet one another with a holy kiss. And so I'm going to call Buddy up and we're going to demonstrate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Buddy. Um, God uses fellowship and connection with one another to change us. Uh, most of you all heard of, of Larry Crabb. He's a, he's a well-known Christian counselor. Um, you know, he has all these degrees and wrote all these books. And he wrote a book called Connecting. And he said that for all his degrees and knowledge, and, and yes, there are times for somebody to, to, to go see a specialist, obviously, he started to, to think that one of the most powerful things that can actually change us is that if we can just truly connect with another person. Like that so infrequently happens. And it is very powerful in our lives when it does happen. And then he tells the story of Henry Nowen, who uh, was a priest and he's written a lot of books. And he just, Nowen just went through a, a really rough time. Am I pronouncing his name right, Matt? Okay, good. Um, score one for me. Um, this is a, this is a, it's the first time for everything. Is that what somebody said? Um, this, now I went through a really hard time, and this is what he wrote about that time. This was a time of extreme anguish during which I wondered whether I would be able to hold on to my own life. Everything came crashing down. My self-esteem, my energy to love and work, my sense of being loved, my hope for healing, my trust in God, everything. Here I was, a writer about the spiritual life, known as someone who loves God and gives hope to people, flat on the ground in total darkness. I experienced myself as a useless, unloved, and despicable person. And then he writes about this elderly priest who came into his life and comforted him. And he says, during the most difficult period of my life, when I experienced great anguish and despair, he was there. Many times he pulled my head to his chest and prayed for me without words, but with a spirit-filled silence that dispelled my demons of despair and made me rise up from his embrace with new vitality. And Larry Crabb writes it like he was, just, he was just blown away by this when he read about this. Uh, and, and I think that it really shows, it shows a couple of things. It shows the power of physical touch, of, of a holy kiss of an embrace, and it shows also the power of community and connection with another, purpose, another person. God uses these things, these connections with people, to change us. You need the people in this room, and the people in this room need you. You need the people in this room, and the people in this room need you. So don't pull away 
because you feel like you're too much of a burden to others. Don't pull away because um, don't pull away because you think you don't need help either. And don't underestimate God's ability to work through you. Like I don't have any training. I don't blah blah blah. blah. Don't underestimate God's ability to work through you and simply your presence with another person, befriending them, praying them, touching them, comforting them. God works through a community to change us. Well, prayer, word, worship, community. God changes us by His grace, but He uses means to communicate His grace to us. You know, if you want to get run over by a train, the best way to do that is to go stand on the train tracks. If you want God to change you, the best way for that to happen is for you and I to stand on the train tracks of His grace. The Word, prayer, community, worship. Those are the, those are the train tracks where God's grace runs. So, Use these means He's given you, but use them in a spirit of total dependence on Him. Use them trusting that God will finish the work that He started in you. Let me pray. Father, would you um, free us from the the burden we feel of trying to perfect ourselves um, and help us to cast ourselves on you? to trust in this good work that you're doing in us. Uh, Thank you, Father, for what you've promised to do. Thank you that what you have started, you will certainly be faithful to complete. Help us to believe that and to bank on that every day. In Jesus' name, amen.